Well, we're back into the uh, book of Romans after a few weeks away into the book of Isaiah over Easter time. And uh, I trust that that time in that old covenant prophet was profitable for your soul as we reflected on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now we're back into the book of Romans. And it's uh, kind of funny because it took me eight sermons to get through chapter one, and we're going to do all of chapter two today. Uh, It's not that I'm trying to catch up. It's really that that's the way the text just falls apart. Uh, All of chapter two, I think, makes best sense if you understand all of it together, whereas there were so many concepts in chapter one that we had to deal with them one at a time. For many different reasons in my life right now, uh, I've been thinking a lot about death. That's always the case, actually, for me but it seems a little bit more so now than even normally. Uh, As a a minister of the gospel, that's just what we think about. We think about death, preparing people to die well, preparing people to live on the other side of death. Uh, Certain circumstances in my life this past week have reminded me that death is very real. Death is ever-present. Death is only a whisper away for any one of us at any time. None of us knows with any certainty, how long we will live. Death is coming for us. We will all die. I said that last week, and I think the week before that. I say it again this week. Because after death, and this is what we're going to see today, comes the judgment. It is appointed to humankind to live, to die, and then to be judged. And the judgment is a judgment of works. How well did you live your life? When your life is put on the scales before the almighty, holy, truly perfect God, how will you measure up? What would you say if I told you that our gospel is founded on a judgment of works? I think if you're like me, you would instinctively say, that's not quite right. There's something that doesn't sound quite right about that. We don't believe in a judgment of works. We don't believe in a righteousness by works. But that's precisely what Romans chapter 2 is all about. And when we get so far down the road as gospel-believing Christians that we forget that at the ground level of what we believe is a judgment of works and perfect righteousness is required. It's not a 50% plus one if, if we measure our lives and well, we did just a little more good than evil, then we're fine. It's all good or no good at all. And there's a judgment of works at the end of every life. Bear with me as we work through this idea, when we forget this though, we lose the strength, the power, and the glory of the Gospel. If there is no judgment of works, then we have no need for a Gospel. It's the judgment of works that comes at the end of every life that makes the Gospel the most precious reality in the life of a believer. Let's take a look at what the Word of God says about this. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, as you're looking for your spot, would you please stand? 
Romans chapter 2. This is the Word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, you practice the very same things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and for honor and for immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all have sinned with, without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse, or even excuse, them on that day, when, according to my Gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from man, but from God. These are the words of God. Let's pray. God, help us to understand this chapter. And I pray for us even now. uh, We are not accustomed to thinking of a judgment of works at the conclusion of our life. Help us to understand what this means for us. Help us to understand what this means for the people we love. Help us to understand how this informs the gospel and gives rise to it. Glorify yourself. Work through me powerfully in spite of me, for I stand in desperate need of your grace and your gospel. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. On the one hand, this is a tough chapter. I mean, we're still in the wrath of God. These, these first uh, two and a half chapters of the book of Romans really set the stage for the gospel, and there's a lot of wrath. It's about judgment and wrath and condemnation and, and how we fall short. And, and this chapter is an extremely sobering chapter because it tells us that there's a judgment at the end and you must be a doer of the law to be counted righteous. Or, to use a different word, to be justified. Justified just means to be righteous. For God to look at you and say, you're righteous. How is one counted righteous? How is one justified? Well, here in chapter 2, we're told that you are justified or counted righteous if you are perfect under the law. If your works can be measured and found to be perfect, God will say you are righteous. And so it's a sobering chapter. The context of this chapter is what we were going through for several sermons from Romans 1.18 through to 32. And without redoing all of that, we're told that God's wrath is revealed from heaven. And the big reason that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven, the reason that He's going to condemn the world in, in space and time right now, but then ultimately at the final judgment, is because we have worshipped creation rather than the Creator. And there's a variety of different ways that we can do that. You can make a statue and worship it, or you can worship your bank account, uh, and so many other things in between. But the the common thread there is God's wrath is poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness because we, the human race, has worshipped creation rather than the Creator. 
We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship the things that He has made rather than worshiping the One who made them. Now the implicit object, and we didn't talk about this, but the implicit object of that accusation is leveled toward Gentiles. Now it's true, uh, there were some Jews who fell into idolatry, and if you really pressed uh, any individual Jewish person at any time in history, they too would fall into creation worship. But they would not consider themselves to be worshipers of creation. The Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Israel, among all of the nations, especially after they were brought back from exile, worshipped the Creator rather than the creation. And that was a great uh, condemnation that the, the, the Jewish nation could level against all of the other nations. We're different from you. We worship God. You worship the things that God has made. And so when Paul is writing the book of Romans to the church in Rome, that church is filled with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and the risk that verses uh, 18 through 32 of chapter, uh, chapter 1 run is this, that the Jewish Christians would say, that's not about me. That's about you Gentiles. You Gentiles were creation worshipers. We Jews worship the one true God. And Paul's totally aware of this. So whether that's accurate or not in the final analysis, that's how the Jews would understand their relationship to God and worship to be. We worship God, you Gentiles worship creation. So in spite of some notable failings among the Jews throughout all of the centuries, implicitly, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 is directed to Gentile believers. And it really is addressing pagan idolatry. Now, in chapter 2, Paul says, but hold on a minute, you Jewish Christians in Rome. You're not off the hook. Because from verses 28 through 32, Paul has given a list of things that flow out from false worship. All kinds of sinful practice. All kinds of depravity. A distorted mind. Above that, he talked about a distorted sexuality. And then all other kinds of wickedness and evil that is going on here. And then look at the very first word of chapter 2. So immediately, the context is sinful behavior. And he says, therefore... And this is kind of trite, but what is the therefore, therefore? Whenever you see therefore in the Scriptures, especially if you're reading Paul, you have to ask, oh, there's a therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? The therefore in chapter 2, verse 1, is bringing our attention back to chapter 1. So in, right above the therefore, we have all kinds of wicked behavior, and now he says therefore. So he wants us to have that wicked behavior in our mind. He says, you, we don't know who he's talking to yet, have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He's talking to the people in Rome, the, the, the Christians in Rome, who would point the finger and say, Paul's right. You were worshiping idols. You were worshiping creation. And where did that get you? Sexual depravity and all kinds of other evil and wicked nonsense. And Paul says, hold on a minute. <laughs> you who judge others in the church, you also have no excuse, every one of you who judges. Why? Because in passing judgment on another, you Jewish believer, it's going to become clear, but you Jewish Christian, uh, pass judgment on your Gentile brothers and sisters, but you don't realize that you're condemning yourself. 
Why would you say that? We worship the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We don't worship creation. Because you who judge practice the very same things. Implicitly then, you may think that you worship God spotlessly, but you too have fallen into some kind of perverted worship which is uh, manifesting itself in all kinds of wicked behavior. And so he says, you practice the same things. And so you're no further ahead. If chapter 1 is directed at Gentiles, chapter 2 is directed at Jewish believers. I want you to see the, the way that Paul structures this. Take a look, for example, in verses 18 through 25, or 23, sorry, of chapter 1. We're just going to highlight two things. We're going to compare this with the first five verses of chapter 2. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. I want you to notice two things in, in those verses. Number one, verse 18, the wrath of God. Paul's talking about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Why? Because of this false worship. Second thing I want you to notice is the end of chapter 20. So they, that is Gentiles, are without excuse. And, and that's true for all of humanity, Jews also. Humanity is without excuse. Because God has revealed Himself in the things that He has made. So don't worship the things that God has made, but worship the One who is greater than the things that were made. Worship the One who made them. So two things, wrath and, and they are without excuse. Now take a look at the first five verses of chapter 2. We're thinking about wrath and being without excuse. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you who do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Add in there, like what kind of twisted logic are you using? Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, the idea there is, the Jews would say, well, I don't see any wrath coming for me. And Paul says, well, don't take advantage of the forbearance, the patience, the grace, the mercy of God. God is being gracious to you, but you're still doing the very same things that flow out of false worship. So there's something wrong with you as well. Now take a look at verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up what? Wrath 
for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the emphasis in chapter 1 is wrath is being poured out now. The Jews say, well, we worship God and not the creation, therefore there's no wrath for us. And in fact, we're not experiencing the same kind of twisted perversions that the Gentiles are experiencing. Therefore, that must be proof positive that we're okay with God and God is okay with us. And Paul says, well, hold on a minute. You are doing the very same things that the Gentiles are doing. And just because God is being extra kind to you, extra gracious, extra merciful, extra patient, do not for a moment think that you're out from under His wrath. In fact, you're just storing it up. And it will all fall on you at the end in the final judgment. So you have no excuse. You know that what you're doing is wrong, and yet you do it. Long story short, the point that Paul is making, and then we're going to look at it in a little more detail in verses 6 through to the end of the chapter, is the wrath of God is coming for us all. Whether you're a Gentile, pagan, creation worshiper, or you're a God-fearing, Shema-praying, Shema is that hero Israel, the Shema, Shema-praying Jew, the evidence is there to condemn you because you're all doing evil, wicked things. And the righteous judge will not stand for it forever. We can divide the rest of chapter 2 into three sections, and this is where we're going to tease out Paul's argument. The first section runs from verses 6 through 10. And here we're going to really get into the judgment of works. This is one of the clearest places in Scripture where God, through Paul, says there is a judgment of works coming at the end of every life. My life and yours. Second section is verses 11 through 22. And here the judgment, we get a little more detail about it and we find out that this is a judgment without partiality. Whether you're, you're a pagan or you're a Jew, it doesn't matter. There is a judgment of works for you. And I would even add, although it must be clarified and we will clarify it, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, at the end of your life there's a judgment of works. God will judge every life without partiality. Third section runs from verses 23 to 29, and we're told that uh, how this judgment is going to operate, what's the, the standard that is going to be applied? The law is the standard. God will compare every life to the law that he has given through Moses. You know, you're probably sitting there like, what? Are we in a church or not? Bear with me, because this is, this is just the found foundation of the gospel, but there's more good news on top of it, of course. But if we don't understand the foundation, we don't actually really understand what we have in the gospel. So, so the judgment itself will be this. On the day that I die and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, my life is held up against the law, and there's a comparison that is made. And the same is true for you. How will we do? What will our score be? Let's take a look at these all together. Judgment of works. Let's just refresh ourselves in these verses. Listen for it. And what I want you to do, suspend what you know about the Gospel. 
Because you need to reckon with the foundation, the foundational truth, which is a judgment of works. So deal with these verses on face value without explaining them away based on your knowledge of the Gospel. And whatever you do, don't leave or die before the end of the sermon. <laughs> because we're creating some tension here that's important, but we will resolve it. Okay, verse 6 through 10. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress. For every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Greek there, it just means non-Jew. So Paul has divided humanity into two groups, Jews and non-Jews. That's what he calls Jews and Greeks. And the Jews are unbelieving Jews and believing Jews. That is Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews. But there's Jews and there's Greeks. And he's divided the whole world into those two categories. Now what's striking to me about these verses is how clear it is. It's actually not that hard to understand. First verse, God will render to each one according to his works. There will be a judgment. What's the judgment? Well, God's going to look at your life. He's going to look at everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever felt, everything you failed to do, everything you failed to say. Every time you, you thought you were in a secret place and nobody knew what you were doing, or, or when you're in a crowded room and you thought that no one knows what you're thinking, God knows. He's written it all down. And at the end of your life, He is going to render to you according to your works. That's what it means. Total transparency. Everything will be revealed before the judgment seat of Christ. There is nothing hidden. You cannot hide from God. You cannot run from the final judgment. It is going to happen. This striking. Just imagine if, if you could even listen to all of the things that you've ever said. If you could go back and see the inventory of everything you've ever thought or felt. What if you had to watch again everything you've ever done? Well, bad news. On the day you die, you go before God and you are laid totally bare. And for the first time in your life, you will be truly and fully naked. We instinctively react against this kind of thinking in the church. Judgment of works doesn't sound quite right. What about the grace? What about the love? What about uh, the removal of shame? Is the preacher serious? I'm, I am serious. God will judge the world according to their deeds. We get a little more information here. And again, I'm shocked by how clear it is. For those who in patience, and that doesn't mean that you're waiting for something, but those who, in spite of all of the opposition against you, persevere 
in doing what is right, doing what is godly, doing that which is according to the law. If you seek for glory and honor and immortality, it's not clear there. Are you seeking for God's glory? Are you seeking for uh, God's honor? Are you seeking for immortality? For what purpose? But it doesn't really matter if you're seeking God's glory. What it can't mean is a perverted self-glorification. But if you're seeking the eternal things of God, if your life is oriented around His magnificence, if every thing you do is for His honor, if everything you do is to make Him look good, if there's not a, an ounce of selfishness in you, if you have never had a misplaced word, if you've never had an emotion that was irrational or misplaced or, or not right, if you've never done anything that is wrong, if you have been perfect under every detail of the law, then you will receive eternal life. If you have always done what is good, then you will receive glory and honor and peace. Seems fair. However, and here's the bad news, if you've ever been self-seeking, like ever, have you ever thought of yourself first? If you have ever not obeyed the truth perfectly, if you have ever obeyed unrighteousness, then there will be wrath and fury for you. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who has ever done an ounce of evil. And what is evil? Evil is anything that is opposed to God in any way. And notice what, what is not said here, that this judgment of works is not a pass-fail in the sense of do more good than you do evil. It's all or nothing. You have to be entirely perfect or you fail. So on the one hand, there is... Uh, <laughs> There's eternal life, there's glory, there's honor, and there's peace for perfect people. On the other hand, there is wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every one of us who has failed to be perfectly holy. This is the foundation of the gospel. This is what is real. This is God's standard that He has established when He created us. In theory, however, what we find out here is that it is possible to earn your righteousness. It is possible to merit eternal life. And if you go back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, it would have been possible for them to live such a life where they would have graduated to eternal life, glory, honor, and, and what have you. It is possible for us to earn our way into heaven. The problem is all of us have failed to do so. All of us have fallen into that latter category. We have all been self-seeking. We have uh, all of us gone astray. None of us has obeyed the truth perfectly. We have all obeyed unrighteousness to various degrees. We have all done evil. Therefore, this is what we have earned. This is what we have gained for ourselves by the way we've lived our lives. And when our lives are replayed back in the presence of God, we will say, you're right. The evidence is there. 
All we deserve, all we have earned for ourselves is wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is God pulling away. All we deserve, I have pulled away from you, so all I deserve, O God, is for you to pull away from me. Fury. The righteous holy God hates sin. I'm a sinner. So I, I deserve the fury of God. Tribulation and distress. Those are a little bit different because those talk about the condition of damned humanity. Tribulation and distress. Because God created us to exist forever. One thing we didn't talk about over Easter is uh, there is a resurrection of those who are in Christ at the end, but there's also the resurrection of everyone else. Every human being who has ever lived will be raised back to life. But if you're not in Christ, you're raised unto eternal tribulation and distress. You go to a place where God has withdrawn Himself. Oh, He sustains it all right, but He lets you be fully yourself forever and ever and ever. And you're hanging out forever and ever and ever with other people who are fully themselves without any of God's grace, without any of God's goodness. And all you have is a group of people who are totally themselves. That's the definition of hell. With no mediating goodness of God to stop us from going to the depths of our depravity, to the depths of the evil and wickedness that is true of us in our fallen state. And so for those people, there's just tribulation and distress. Paul says that this is true for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Being a Jew is not enough. Having possession of the law is not enough. Being a descendant of Abraham is not enough. Submitting to circumcision is not enough. And let me just add this. Having a Bible on your shelf is not enough. Having parents who are Christians is not enough. Coming to church every Sunday is not enough. You cannot do enough good. You cannot speak enough Christian ease to get out of the problem. This is the reality at the end of our life. There's a judgment of works. What works are you going to offer to God to merit eternal life? So that's the very sobering first part. There is a judgment of works. The second part of chapter 2 is that this is a judgment without partiality. Take a look at verses 11 through 22. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There it is again. I told you at the end, every secret sin will be laid bare. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, 
you who teach others, do you teach yourself? Well, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Uh, this section isn't much easier than the last one, is it? It's also very clear. Those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is really important if we're going to under anything, understand anything else in this section. Uh, basically, this, is, this one verse is a summary of chapter 118 to the end of chapter 2. So those who don't have the law are condemned without the law. Why? This is going back a few weeks. They have no excuse. They know there's a God in heaven because they see the things that He has made. So they're condemned by what we call general revelation. So if you don't have a Bible, you're still condemned. You have no excuse at the end because you didn't worship God. You didn't have the law. You didn't know what God wanted of you, but you didn't even worship God anyway. So you're condemned without the law. You, you are condemned for worshiping the things that God has made rather than worshiping God. Then he goes on though and he says, but those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, so there are a group of you, Jews, or for us, Christians, who have been given the Bible. And whereas nature is general revelation, is generally accessible to everyone, the Bible is specific revelation. It specifically reveals God to those who read it. So if you have read the Bible, you have seen that there's a God from looking outside at all the beautiful nature. If you've read the Bible, you know there's a God because you've read about Him in the Bible. More than that, you know what God expects of you. You know what God requires of you because you've read it. And all Paul is saying here is, so if you've read the Bible or if you've read the law, you have to come to the conclusion that you fall woefully short of the expectation of this book. So this book will condemn you. You'll find out that when it comes to the final judgment, you've broken all of the rules anyway. So owning the Bible is not enough. Paul then transitions into a thought experiment. And he says, you know, let's just say that there are Gentiles who don't have the law. That is, they don't have a Bible. Think of somebody who doesn't have the Bible. But we know that by nature, non-believers who have never read the Bible, every now and again, they accidentally do something good. Uh, sometimes, because God has written the law on our hearts, we know what is right and what is wrong. We, we Human beings, God has given us the law in the book but He's also put the law in our conscience. He's written in our hearts. We, every human being knows instinctively what is right and wrong. And so he says, hypothetically, somebody could follow their conscience every day of their life. There could be someone who never reads the law, never reads the Bible, and just happens to, because they're so dialed in with what is right and what is wrong, they could do what is right all of the time. And if you could find such a person who never read the Bible but did everything that God ever wanted, that person would earn their salvation. They would earn their righteousness. So it's a thought experiment, but don't get distracted by what he's saying. What Paul is not saying is that there is such a person. Paul is not saying that you could find such a Gentile. 
There is no such person. There is no such Gentile who has obeyed the law of God perfectly. Therefore, whether you have the law or not, whether you, you know you're breaking the universal moral law or you know that you're, you're breaking God's revealed law, we've all broken the law. We're all condemned. That's the point. So, he goes on and he gets super sarcastic. Paul every now and again gets sarcastic to make his point. And I want you to hear this as a Christian because this is written to Jews, but there is a, a faint equivalent to people who are raised in the church who we just get sort of breathe in this self-righteous air and we can become very pharisaical, if you know what I mean, like where we think that for some reason we're superior to everyone else. And we can forget that we're just as lost without the grace of God. And so what Paul says to the Jews, this, this could easily apply to us. I'm going to change from Jew to a Christian. So you call yourself a Christian? And you rely on the Bible? And you boast in God? And you know His will? And you prove what is excellent? If you are so sure that you are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the Bible the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see how that can apply to Christians? Oh, we've got the book. We, we know this is right and that is wrong. We know that our culture, our society is going to hell in a handbasket. We can rail against the media. We can rail against the politicians. We can put, uh, thumb our noses and or bite our fingers and, and point our fingers at, at Hollywood. We can say that there's so much smut out there and evil and wickedness. Right? You ever been in a conversation like that with a bunch of Christians? You then... Who teach others? Do you teach yourself? While you preach against all these things, do you do them? The point that Paul is making there is knowing these things and having the Bible and going to church, it's not enough. Judgment without partiality. Third section, verses 23 through 29. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I, I should read the whole thing, but I just can't help it. Let's just pause here for a moment. Is the name of Christ blasphemed among the non-believers because of the witness of the church? Sure it is. We have to be very careful how we present the gospel of God's salvation because right now there's a whole lot of people who will not be saved because the church has made it impossible for them to have ears to hear. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. It gets confusing because we say circumcision so often. <laughs> Circumcision, uncircumcision, what's he talking about? There were a group of people who said, well, 
I've been circumcised, therefore I'm right with God. What's the equivalent? Well, there's all kinds of things. I go to church, so I'm right with God. I take the Lord's Supper, so I'm right with God. I said the sinner's prayer, so I am right with God. Fill in the blank. I've been baptized, so I am right with God. Paul says, well, if you're right with God, why doesn't your life reflect that? And won't the one whose life reflects what God intends and desires of us, he or she be right with God rather than the one who claims something like circumcision or baptism or the Lord's Supper or sinner's prayer? If you want to be right with God, look for evidence in your life that you are right with God. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That is, people would point at, oh, you're circumcised, you're right with God. And God says, well, that's neither here nor there. God looks on the heart and says, you are right with me. Is that Which one is true of you? Do other people look at your life and say, wow, he or she is really going through the motions of the Christian life. They must be right with God. Or does God look at your life and look at your heart and say, oh, that one is right with me. And Paul says, don't worry about the former, but seek after the latter. A judgment under the law Knowing that the law is not enough, circumcision is not enough, it is better to be keep the rest of the law and not be circumcised. It is better to live a Christian life filled with Christian virtues than to have said the sinner's prayer. Is it wrong to be circumcised if you're a Jew? No, it's good. Is it wrong to say the sinner's prayer if you're a Christian? No, it's good and right. And you know what I mean by that, right? In the evangelical tradition, in case some of you aren't aware of this, is really important in the evangelical tradition that there's that moment where you say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. Please save me. That's a wonderful prayer. I hope that we all say that prayer. Many, maybe several times over. But to point to that while the rest of your life is off the rails makes no sense. Don't have any false assurance. In fact, what does Peter say? Make your election sure. Look for these virtues in your life. See that they're growing. Uh, Make sure that that there's evidence of the fruitfulness of the the Spirit of God in your life. Point to that and say, wow, I am right with God. Don't point to something that you said when you were 4 or 5 or 30 or 56. Look for the fruit and the evidence of of the Spirit of God at work in your life. Paul ends this section then by introducing a concept that he will develop later. So I'm not going to flesh it all out here. But he says, what makes a person a true Jew? And a true Jew is not just a Jew, but a a, a true uh, child of Abraham in the salvific sense. What makes someone truly right with God? It's not circumcision of the flesh. It's not some outward sign. It's not some going through the motions. It's a circumcised heart. That is, a heart that has been radically transformed by God. Now, this is all pretty dark, isn't it? And at this point, the sermon could go in two 
very different directions. One is first-rate heresy, and the other is the gospel. So everything I've said up to this point is true and good and right and foundational. But where we go from here will land this sermon either in heresy or in gospel. So where do we go from here? Well, let's just recap what has been said. At the end of every life, there is a judgment of works. In order to earn your righteousness, in order to earn your eternal life, in order to earn your way into heaven, resurrection, eternal life, peace with God, you have to be absolutely perfect, erring in no measure whatsoever. No, no misplaced word, no misplaced thought, no evil deed ever. Perfect. You must be a perfect person. If you can do that, you can earn your place among the saints. The alternative is you will be found guilty and in a world without the gospel, in a world without Jesus Christ, that means wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. Now you notice how I nuanced that where I didn't before. So before we get to the gospel, there's two destinations for all of us. You die, there's the judgment. You earn your place with God or you go to hell. That's it. Has anyone ever lived a perfect life? It's a tricky question. One. This is where the Gospel comes in. And there's one man, one human being who has earned his place among the saints. There's one man who has earned eternal life. There is one man who when God puts his life in the balance, when God puts the law up against his life, God says, blameless, spotless, holy perfection. Come in, my son. Sit with me on my right hand. Enjoy all the fruit and glory and honor and immortality and peace that comes from a righteous life. You are justified by works. You have made yourself righteous by your works. One. And we know who He is. He's Jesus. The rest of us, unfortunately, have not. So all we can hope for in a world without the Gospel is wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. Now, before we get to praise be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where you know we're going, but before we get there, I do want to introduce this idea. We have to be saved by works. Which is why Christ came. See, when we say that no one will be saved by works, it's because we've all fallen short, but that's that's true in a certain context, but it's not true in another context. God will only permit people to come into eternal life. He will only justify people by works. Well, then we have a real problem, don't we? The only way to be right with God is to come through the judgment of works. And none of us have the works that will help us to get through the judgment. What are we going to do? We're going to unite ourselves to Christ and His works are going to cover us. And, and so when you're thinking about the Gospel, don't throw away chapters 
like chapter 2 of the book of Romans. This is foundational. You can only be saved. You can only be justified through a spotless life, through perfect works. And just because you don't have that life, just because you don't have those works, doesn't mean there's any other way. That's why God sent Jesus Christ. We were saved not only by the death of Christ, not only by the death and resurrection of Christ, we were saved by the conception, the birth, and the life of Christ. Because while he wrestled with Satan in the wilderness, he was saving our souls. Because had he failed, then we come to the end of our life, we come to the judgment, and there is no good works that we can unite ourselves to. There's no good works that we can put ourselves under. We can't point to any perfect life and say, count that toward me. But because Jesus Christ was sinless, because he was perfect, because he earned his place, we fall under his umbrella. We unite ourselves to him and we cling to him. Do you see? We cling to him and we say, oh Lord Jesus, I claim your perfect life when I stand before the judgment seat of God. And there's something about that nuance to the gospel that compels me to worship him just a little bit more. The death of Christ is amazing. His resurrection is marvelous. But a perfect life? It's unthinkable. I don't even know what it would have looked like because I've never seen it. I read about it, but I don't have all of his years, all of his moments. Can't get inside his head, inside his heart. But he lived a perfect, spotless life, claimed the life of Jesus Christ, and be saved. There's one other implication that I want to really put over us as a church. This changes our witness. There's no place for self-righteousness in the church. There, there's no place for, for pointing fingers at the heathen, at the pagans, at the immoral. And we can grieve the sin that's in the world, can break our hearts, but who are we apart from Christ? So we need to be ministers of reconciliation. Not downplaying the wickedness in the world but saying look all of us every one of us me myself would fall in a world of perfect justice but praise be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ why don't you fall under his life and allow his perfect works stand between you and the judgment of God I think that that is a much more winning message than God hates these people and those people and whatever. Let us go out there with grace on our lips. With the ministry of reconciliation to bring people under the perfect life of Christ. Because there is a judgment of works at the end of every life. Now the good news for you and for me, if you are in Christ, when God looks at your life he says, all I see is a perfect life. Is that not going to be an astounding moment? 
God's not going to drag up all the sin in your life. Instead, he's going to say, I see perfection because he sees in you the perfect life of Christ. Now that is a gospel. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to be ministers of reconciliation. We know that there's a judgment of works and I praise you that when I stand before you, the works of Christ will be credited to my account. I want that for all of us and for so many more. Please add to our number those who are being saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.